welcome to all of you joining today's talk both here uh, in person and online. I'm very grateful firstly to Dan Sarushi for introducing me or uh, point out reintroducing me to the discussion group and of course to uh, Natasha without uh, whom uh, nothing would be possible so thank you. Um, and uh, before I, before I say anything else, I'm going to underline the fact that my uh, remarks are made in a purely personal uh, capacity. As I say, it's a pleasure to return here um, to the group, to the discussion group uh, for public international law at Oxford. My last encounter with the group um, led to an article called the Leiden Journal of International Law on the authoritative interpretation of the treaty basis of international organizations. And, I hope to show you today that that subject and today's topic uh, are fundamentally interrelated. Um, but first, what I want to do is to redeem this law, this so-called international administrative law, from um, some obscurity. Um, although, paradoxically, I will begin to do this by dwelling upon its obfuscation. And secondly, I want to modestly offer a version um, of the law, which I would contend, I would um, modestly submit to you, was more workable. Um, and by this, I mean identifying a usable and knowable, applicable law and legal structure to employment-related disputes at international organizations. I also welcome your uh, skeptical consideration of all of this uh, and the contribution of any sort of analogous uh, or analysis, uh, analysis of analogous lex specialis of general international law with which you may be intimately familiar, um, but I am not. So following this introduction, I'm going to divide my talk into three parts. I'm going to begin with a short case study uh, by way of trying to ground the discussion in how the applicable law is typically stated and the sort of facts, the sort of employment-related facts it interacts with. Second, I'll sketch out the three central controversies to the law, including uh, my own observations. And lastly, thirdly, I'll suggest a workable version of the employment law of international uh, organizations and offer some concluding remarks. So the employment law of international organizations, so-called international administrative law, or uh, as it's sometimes known, the law of the international civil service is almost 100 years old. And I say this because the Treaty of Versailles, signed in 1919, uh, bringing the First World War to conclusion, incorporated the Covenant of the League of Nations. So for the first time, you have an international organization um, that was deliberately intended to be staffed not by secondees, not by envoys from states, but instead by an independent and international civil service loyal only to the League. Uh, and the first employment-related dispute that arose in this setting uh, remains, I think, instructive. It involved, as the claimant, uh, an official called Francois Menod, and he had been appointed to the Secretariat on a five-year contract as, uh, and I have to say, I think his title was rather marvelous, the director of the Tracy writing section. This was his job. But in February 1921, he uh, mutually agreed um, with the Secretary General of the League, Sir Eric Drummond, that uh, upon the reorganization of his section, 
uh, he would cease to act as its director and he would go on a leave of absence. And the understanding was that he would then be reabsorbed into the secretariat as soon as a suitable post um, arose, but no such suitable post did arise. I have to say, based upon my own experience as a practicing international organizations where uh, this uh, kind of fact pattern um, is fairly timeless, this sort of case could uh, occur uh, yesterday and tomorrow. Menard's dispute was referred to the Council of the League of Nations. There was no other apparatus in place. And the Council formed a commission to advise them uh, on how to resolve the dispute. The commission was comprised of three international jurists, an Italian, a Dutch, and a Swedish national. And they reported in 1925. The commission found that Menod's employment was not contractual, or in other words, uh, simply a private bargain between employer and employee. But instead, my quote, it said, the public administration by the League of Nations accomplishes an act of authority for an object of public utility. And by such act, it confers on private persons public duties, thus endowing them with the status of officials, inasmuch as it is this delegation of public duties that characterizes appointment to public offices. The Commission regarded this transposition from private person to public office holder as inherent to membership of the Secretariat, inherent essentially to being an international civil servant. Since the League was an intergovernmental entity activated by the public interest. And in turn, the Commission found that relations connected with public employment are always governed by the exigencies of the public interest to which the private and personal interests of the officials must necessarily give way. However, the Commission also cautioned um, that this uh, unfettered sense of authority was in fact not unbounded. It said, this does not mean that a public administration can exercise its powers in an arbitrary manner. The public administration must always in all its acts have regard to the public interest and respect the principles of justice. If it, if it exceeds its powers for private ends, or ends not authorized by law, or if it commits an injustice, it is guilty of unlawful acts. Consequently, the Commission found that the only legal question at issue was whether the claimant, Mr. Menard, had been relieved of his duties, quote, dictated solely by regard for the interests of the administration. If there was no reason to think otherwise, then the discretion of the Secretary General was unquestionable. Uh, the Commission consequently upheld the termination of Mr. Menard's appointment, but in fact it found that he was owed sums uh, unpaid uh, before the end of his appointment, plus an amount because he had been induced to step down by what proved to be an empty promise of future re-engagement. So in the aftermath of this ad hoc committee, the League of Nations went on to establish a so-called International Administrative Tribunal, and did this in 1927. This tribunal continues to exist today 
as the administrative tribunal of the International Labour Organization. But the legal features of this case, um, almost 100 years old, are the assertion of a self-evident but unattributed applicable law somehow derived from the status <laughs> of the treaty-based employing entity. This all remains relevant uh, to attendant and unresolved controversies today. These controversies I want to turn to now. I think it's fair to say that when I'm usually talking about uh, so-called international administrative law, I'm fairly greasy about its uh, nomenclature, its cohesiveness, and um, its uh, mere existence. Um, however, um, all three of these features are respectable and I think rather consequential controversies. And so I'm going to try to essay them to you and offer my observations. To begin with uh, nomenclature, you will have noticed, I think, um, that so far I've referred rather cautiously, rather curiously, perhaps cryptically, <laughs> to uh, uh, an international administrative law prefixed by so-called. The term international administrative law is in wide usage, it is ubiquitous, but it is constantly criticized. Um, one of its critics, uh, Shinichi Ego, uh, a Japanese jurist and not unimportantly a member of the Asian Development Bank Administrative Tribunal. He argues that the literal legal definition of international administrative law in no wise would lead you to suppose that it connoted the employment law of international organizations. He notes that the leading author in the field, uh, C.F. Amerasinga, refers to the sources of international administrative law or the law governing employment relations in international organizations. Uh, Ego concludes that the notion of international administrative law is closer to the concept of international institutional law or the so-called global administrative law, which you may have heard of its um, concept, uh, worked on by uh, Benedict Kingsbury and his colleagues at NYU. Ego says both nations are based on the assumption that there is an international public interest or global governance, which is administered by a set of international rules. Well, I think that the administrative and international administrative law has stuck um, for three reasons. Firstly, as you heard from our case study, the first so-called international administrative law case, the concept of an international organization exercising powers of public administration, and hence the notion that international civil servants are administrators, has been present from this law's inception. Uh, second, it's also the case, I think, that within international organizations, a shorthand exists, uh, dividing the functioning of the institution between operational on the one hand and its antithesis, uh, administration or administrative activities on the other hand. So operations means the fulfillment of the mandate of the organization uh, and its related laws. So the mandate is international uh, finance development or multilateral development banks, 
this will be uh, its uh, operations. And administration means everything else, including staffing the institution. And notably, you'll appreciate that operations differ between international organizations, but administration um, is a commonality. And lastly, um, in approaching nomenclature generally, uh, international organizations demonstrate the tendency to downplay or de-escalate uh, terminology intending to evade uh, legal rigidities and perhaps also elevated governance uh, authorization. So uh, what do I mean by that? I mean that the memorandum of understanding is ubiquitous. Almost everything can be achieved through the memorandum of understanding, nothing more is needed. Thus, the Forum for Resolving Employment-Related Disputes takes the name innocuously Administrative Tribunal or International Administrative Tribunal. Uh, so it seems as a consequence that an international administrative tribunal applies international administrative law. But this uh, observation, this may just concatenate the misnaming. Krista Cooker, uh, president and member of several international administrative tribunals, writes, the notion that international administrative law, uh, sorry, the notion international administrative tribunal is indeed misleading, he says, since these tribunals, with a few exceptions, generally only deal with international civil service cases and not with challenges to other administrative decisions. And indeed, our second controversy um, of three relates to these so-called international um, administrative tribunals, namely uh, cohesiveness, uh, or absence of cohesiveness of the law. You may have heard me already, heard me refer to the international civil service. Uh, even those who traduce international administrative law find the term international civil service uh, unobjectionable. And, and yet, um, what we mean when we say this is we mean employees of innumerable international organizations. Um, so we don't mean what we mean when we say national civil service, uh, in other words, uh, all officials cohesively and ultimately answerable to uh, a single head of state, a single head of service, a single head of government, perhaps. Um, and because of this, um, or, or compounding this, depending upon your point of view, uh, there is a multitude of international administrative tribunals. In light of the jurisdiction immunity as international organizations, administrative tribunals are established as subsidiary organs by the plenary governance organs of international organizations. So what do I mean? I mean, it's the United Nations General Assembly that uh, establishes the administrative tribunal for the UN. It's the board of governors of the World Bank to establish the World Bank administrative tribunal and so forth. And these tribunals adjudicate employment-related disputes, uh, and beyond them, there is no further appeal or recourse. Um, as I said, the League of Nations Administrative Tribunal became the ILO's Administrative Tribunal, the ILOAT, in 1946. Um, the ILOAT is um, somewhat unusual. About 60 international organizations uh, recognize the jurisdiction, the appellate jurisdiction of the ILOAT. 
1949, the United Nations Administrative Tribunal was established. Uh, it's, uh, those of you familiar with the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice, it's the star of the ICJ's advisory opinion uh, effective awards of compensation made by the UNAT. Uh, and it was established in 1954. This then was replaced by the two-tier UN Dispute Tribunal and UN Appeals Tribunal in 2009. Uh, in addition to the UN itself, uh, its funds and programs, uh, about a dozen other UN specialized agencies recognize uh, the UN uh, uh, DTAT jurisdiction. But then there are no other major uh, uh, international administrative tribunals. There are no other uh, essentially coordinatory international administrative tribunals. Instead, there are countless tribunals uh, possessing jurisdiction limited to the international organization that establishes them. So all IFIs, international financial institutions, have their own tribunal. The World Bank, the IMF, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, the EBRD, the European Stability Mechanism, the Inter-American Development Bank, Bank of International Settlements, etc., etc., etc. They all have their own administrative tribunal. So in fact, does the uh, Commonwealth Secretariat in London. Um, I happen to be the Executive Secretary of the Commonwealth Secretariat uh, Arbitral Tribunal. The latest, I'm told, the latest AT to be established was for the Caribbean community, uh, also known as CARICOM, in 2019. And uh, de Kuka, the, uh, the jurist uh, I mentioned earlier, He's written, there is therefore no reason to think that proliferation of international administrative tribunals will not continue. In fact, several organizations regularly review their dispute resolution systems, and those who do not have their own tribunal often consider the advantages and inconveniences of uh, creating one. But then you might think, well, this abundance of venues must, must, lead to some certainty of the applicable law. Uh, the ILOAT has to date issued 4,579 judgments. The World Bank Administrative Tribunal, uh, founded in 1980, has issued 685. Uh, the website of the UN system is too cumbersome uh, to quickly add up the total. Um, but I think it's reasonable to suppose that we've now passed the point where there are 10,000 or so uh, judgments by these tribunals. But the statutes, the governing instruments of administrative tribunals and the sections that they enclose, which can be considered closest to an applicable law section, um, will they hint at the trouble that includes. So the ILOAT statute says the tribunal shall be competent to hear complaints alleging non-observance in substance or in form of the terms of appointment of officials of the International Labour Office and of such provisions of the staff regulations as are applicable to the case. Uh, similarly, the WBAT, the World Bank uh, Administrative Tribunal, its statute says the tribunal shall hear and pass judgment 
upon any application by which a member of the staff of the bank group alleges non-observance of the contract of employment or terms of appointment of such staff member. The words contract of employment and terms of appointment include all pertinent regulations and rules in force at the time of alleged non-observance, including the provisions of the staff retirement plan. No mention, uh, you will notice, of international administrative law. Occasionally, a tribunal statute does refer to international administrative law um, as a source of law, as applicable law, but it doesn't define the term. So the, the statute of the Commonwealth Secretariat's tribunal states in dealing with a case um, related to a contract of service, the tribunal shall be bound by the principles of international administrative law, which shall apply to the exclusion of the national laws of individual member countries. I, as an observation, I can tell you that this is done when new tribunals are created to try to sort of tether them to the existing, the extant universe of administrative tribunals and so-called international administrative laws without being bound or compelled by a um, strict sense of uh, precedent. So lastly, um, not unimportantly, a uh, third controversy is the mere existence of the law. Um, even the very existence of international administrative law is uh, doubted uh, after only 100 years. This criticism has two limbs. The first limb is that since international organizations are self-contained legal regimes, you cannot draw on the case law of administrative tribunals outside the organization. Thus reference to a law that purports to do this uh, uh, and suggesting amalgamation is, is misconceived. The very first case uh, decided by the World Bank's administrative tribunal in 1980 um, sort of struggled to resolve this. Um, and it said, uh, I'll quote this uh, uh, somewhat at length, uh, it's uh, uh, an important judgment known as Demerit. While the various international administrative tribunals do not consider themselves bound by each other's decisions and have worked out uh, a sometimes divergent jurisprudence adapted to each organization, it is equally true that on certain points the solutions reached are not significantly different. It even happens that the judgments of one tribunal may refer to the jurisprudence of another. Some of these judgments even go so far as to speak of general principles of international civil service law or of a body of rules applicable to the international civil service. The next sentence is um, somewhat surprising. Whether these similar features amount to a true corpus juris is not a matter on which it is necessary for the tribunal to express a view. Uh, instead, it says, the tribunal is free to take note of solutions worked out in sufficiently comparable conditions by other administrative tribunals, particularly those of the United Nations family, in this way, the tribunal may take account of both the diversity of international organizations and the special character of the bank without neglecting the tendency towards a certain rapprochement. This is a very, very grand um, formulation. Um, it could be glossed, I think, by um, Shinichi Ego's observation 
And he's written, it is an undisputed reality that judges refer to other international administrative tribunals' decisions, and more generally, to international administrative law. Whenever they have difficulties identifying concrete rules to support their arguments. The, the second limb to the alleged non-existence uh, of so-called international administrative law is the criticism that even so-called concrete rules uh, do not amount to, well, what the WBAT might call a true corpus uh, juris. Amera Singer, uh, the leading uh, scholar of the field, uh, possesses a, a somewhat um, uh, noteworthy view, uh, particularly in light of how exhaustive his treatise is. He said, it is unnecessary and not possible to evolve a theory relating to the formal sources referred to by tribunals. Suffice it to say that there are numerous formal sources from which tribunals have in practice derived the rules which they apply. Such reference has conversely not rested on any preconceived theory of formal sources of international administrative law, rather practical necessity and judicial wisdom have determined what formal sources should be invoked in deciding cases. Nevertheless, he goes on to identify uh, a bricolage of sources including staff regulations, staff rules, statutes of tribunals, decisions of tribunals, contracts of employment and similar instruments, constituent instruments, general principles of law, practice, international law, municipal law, equity, and judicial precedents. So an undeniable degree of judicial wisdom would be required to sift through all of this, and this clearly is a headache um, for the judges, um, this is to say nothing of the perplexity that it might uh, lead to in ordinary staff members of international organizations. With Amera Singer, you start to get this sort of sense that you could just sort of throw everything at it, maybe including a gesture to the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, Article 31, General Rule of Interpretation, and also the ICJ statute article 38 in the applicable law. But let's just pause and say, well, um, let's take up general principles of law as a, an inoffensive part of the applicable law of so-called international administrative law. How exactly then are they to be identified? And how then are they to penetrate the carapace of the jurisdictional immunity of international organizations? Let's go back to a concrete example of Menard and the principle expressed by the Commission public administration must always, in all its acts, have regard to the public interest and respect the principles of justice. Is this a general principle of law recognized by civilized nations? per the ICJ statute, Article 38, uh, subsection C, or is it a general rule of international law within the terms of the ICJ's advisory opinion interpretation of the agreement between WHO and Egypt when they wrote international organizations are subjects of international law 
and as such are bound by any obligations incumbent upon them under general rules of international law, under their constitutions or under international agreements to which they are parties. I mentioned it um, when we were talking before, what I discovered when uh, teaching at Peking University um, is that this idea of the restraint of public administration may not be sufficiently universal to uh, compromise some inalienable uh, international legal principle. Even the International Court of Justice itself issuing a remarkable five advisory opinions functioning as a court of appeal from the ILOAT and UNAT, uh, an unhappy role, I think, um, now discontinued, um, plus the effect of awards um, advisory opinion. Uh, so six cases in total. It, it hasn't been detained by this uh, issue. In the first of these advisory opinions in 1956, called upon to interpret the ILOAT's jurisdiction clause that I uh, read out uh, moments ago, it sustained its finding, stating, in doing so, the court has relied on the wording of the text in question, as well as on their spirit, namely the purpose for which they were adopted. But that purpose was to ensure to the organization the services of the personnel possessing the necessary qualifications of competence and integrity and effectively protected by appropriate guarantees in the matter of observance, matter of, observance of the terms of employment and of the provisions of the staff regulations. It is in that way that the court arrived at what it considers to be the correct interpretation of the statute of the administrative tribunal. And yet, I think that the ICJ is, uh, is modestly, I think it's onto something. Uh, because, why do I think that? Well, because without actually saying so, it is referring to attributes of international civil servants encoded into the treaty bases of international organizations. So thirdly, to come now to a more workable version, more knowable version of, of the employment law of international organizations, we in fact come full circle back to uh, my talk to the discussion group many years ago uh, about the treaty bases of international organizations. We know that international organizations possess the competencies expressly stated in their constituent instrument or which are necessarily implied uh, sorry, necessarily uh, intended by implication uh, to be possessed by them to achieve their purposes. We know too that they are possessed of a limited competence as subjects of international law, unlike the general competence wielded by states. We know too that this treaty basis is authoritatively interpreted in accordance with a set of principles, are always exhibiting good faith. Knowing this then, I think it is eye-catching that the treaty basis of international organizations has much to say about the law of employment um, at 
those organizations. The treaty basis of international organizations obligates four characteristics of the employees of international organizations. And these clauses, these obligations are replicated almost verbatim uh, throughout the multitude of constituent instruments of all international organizations in the world. But we're going to use the UN Charter uh, for convenience. So four obligatory attributes. First, competence. Second, geographic diversity. Third, integrity. Fourth, hierarchical discipline. So the first is competence. So the UN Charter, uh, Article 101, subparagraph three, first sentence says, the paramount consideration in the employment of the staff and in the determination of conditions of service shall be the necessity of securing highest standards of efficiency, competence, and integrity. So we'll consider integrity under um, subsequent heading. But you'll notice that these highest standards of efficiency and competence are to be secured. Um, so how then are they secured? Well, iterated in the internal law of the organization, you have this obligation rendered as recruitment must be transparent, it must be merit-based. Uh, international officials must be appropriately incentivized. If poor performance was not appropriately addressed, then competence would not have been secured. So there are this set of ramifications or obligations in this treaty provision mandatory upon the organization is to be uh, implemented in good faith. Second, geographic diversity. So competence must be reconciled with geographic diversity. Uh, second sentence of Article 101, subparagraph three of the UN Charter says, due regard shall be paid to the importance of recruiting the staff on as wide a geographical basis as possible. So geographic diversity is, of the staff is uh, a subordinate preoccupation to the highest standards of efficiency and technical competence and due regard uh, establishes uh, a degree of um, subjectivity. It's rare that this is uh, applied or can be applied in a sort of case-by-case, person-by-person basis, but it is the basis I would contend for seeking to attract and retain a multinational staff. It's due regard. Um, so what does that mean? It means that if you're running the United Nations um, in New York, working there must be as attractive to Chinese international officials, Russian international officials, British international officials, international officials from all around the world, as it is attractive to US national international officials. And it's also the legal basis, um, I contend, for being able to essentially legitimately discriminate between staff because of this distinction um, based upon 
uh, geographic diversification. So it's the basis for uh, paying the relocation costs of a staff member who moves from Paris to New York, um, but not the relocation costs of somebody who moves from Boston to New York, perhaps. And it means that there must be, or it is obligatory, in order to implement this mandatory attribute of the international civil service that something is done to make sure that um, the workplace is adequately attractive to a multinational staff. So pay their relocation uh, expenses, pay a housing subsidy, pay to educate children in their own languages, uh, in private schools perhaps, paying some sort of compensation because the spouse of the organization's official is now unemployed, perhaps depending upon the context, uh, unemployable um, at that duty station. Thirdly, uh, integrity. Well, integrity sort of nowadays, the modern ring of integrity is anti-corruption and integrity in the context of the international civil service certainly means that. Um, but it also means what's referred to as the undivided duty of loyalty, inaugurated at the League of Nations, in fact. And this is comprised of two interlocking provisions. They're almost, it's almost the definition of the international civil service. So I'll read them to you. It's uh, Article 100 of the UN Charter. First uh, paragraph is, in the performance of their duties, the Secretary General and the staff shall not seek or receive instructions from any government or from any other authority external to the organization. They shall refrain from any action which might reflect on their position as international officials responsible only to the organization. This interlocks with the second paragraph, which is each member of the United Nations undertakes to respect the exclusively international character of the responsibilities of the Secretary General and the staff and not to seek to influence them in the discharge of their responsibilities. Again, this then is implemented as a treaty provision is implemented in the internal law of the organization by things like codes of conduct, uh, misconduct investigation and disciplinary procedures and indeed by international administrative tribunals as the guarantors, sort of backstop to this uh, and these other attributes. And then fourthly, hierarchical authority. Uh, international organizations, uh, it's a bit like the army. Um, international civil servants are subordinated to a hierarchical authority. In other words, there is always a principal executive officer to use the parlance of the UN Specialized Agency Convention. So in the case of the UN, it's the Secretary General, in the case of the World Bank, it's the President and so forth. Um, Article 97 of the UN Charter says, the Secretariat shall comprise the Secretary General and such staff as the organization may require. The Secretary General shall be appointed by the General Assembly upon the recommendations of the Security Council. He shall be I say he, he shall be the chief administrative officer of the organization. But Article 101, subparagraph one of the charter also says the staff shall be appointed by the Secretary General under regulations established by the General Assembly. Two observations there. 
this function as chief of staff uh, is possessed of the secretary general by the treaty, not as a delegate or a, a delegated function from the governance organ, but the governance organ has this role in issuing a framework, staff regulations to the internal law of employment at the organization. Uh, and the staff regulations would be assumed to be the superior source of law to the legal instruments issued by uh, the Secretary General. So my contention is that these same four treaty-based attributes of all international civil servants governing competence, geographic diversity, integrity, crucially safeguarding independence, and hierarchical authority, they together form, I think, uh, the foundations of the applicable law of employment at international organizations. So, lastly, to conclude, my proposal, uh, modest submission, is that the employment law of international organizations, clear, let's just use plain English, it's over to you. The employment law of international organizations derives from these treaty-based characteristics are attributed to the entirety of the international civil service implemented by or instrumentalized are, in other words, representing a practice within the sense of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, Article 31.2b, as applied to international organizations, uh, implemented or instrumentalized both by the executive authority of principal executive officers and governance organs through their adoption, both of regulations and critically, the statutes of so-called international administrative tribunals, whose adjudicatory activity is subsumed into the legal authority and the practice of the organ that establishes them. This then means you possess an underlying treaty basis which cannot be transgressed by any administrative action of an international organization common to all international organizations. And hence, I would contend we can in fact talk of a user common uh, employment law of international organizations. So by way of example, um, to return for the last time to um, the case of Mr. Minard, uh, the, uh, the crazy writing section director, um, there the principle was rendered public administration must always in all its acts have regard to the public interest and respect the principles of justice. My contention would be that this is more appropriately rendered without the need to sort of call in exterior principles as something like an international organization in all its acts is confined to its treaty basis with regard to its objects and purposes and is to secure the competence, geographic diversity, integrity, and discipline of all its staff in good faith. 
the effect may be the same. My contention is that the knowability, in other words, the workability of this version of employment law would be far, far, um, far uh, greater. Lastly, I didn't begin as is customary with a joke, but I shall end with one, one you doubtless heard. It goes this way, the English judge, hearing uh, uh, representations from counsel, and no, 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 interrupts this. It doesn't need to be told what public international law is, uh, because he, he knows what it is. English law is law, foreign law is fact, and public international law is fiction. <laughs> This, is, this always makes me smile. And it, it kept on coming back when I was sort of trying to you know, arrange all of these sort of puzzle pieces for today's um, sort of uh, paper. And I kept on wondering, you, to sort of carry on the joke, what would you say about so-called international administrative law? Uh, is it a fiction of a fiction? Um, and then I thought, perhaps it's the folklore. And so I looked up folklore. Folklore is traditional beliefs, customs, songs, tales, etc., preserved in oral tradition among a group of people. And the sort of sense that there's this 100-year tradition preserved uh, by, by, by lawyers like me. And all of this may seem, you know, sort of droll and inconsequential, unless, 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 uh, this is when I return to being very earnest, uh, unless, it's critical to the accountability, the integrity, the effectiveness of giant and gigantically influential multilateral institutions, appointing, incentivizing, promoting, dismissing, and safeguarding the independence of staff who instrumentalize the mandates of international organizations. In case of the UN uh, created, as uh, said, created to take mankind to heaven. Uh, not to, not created, sorry, not created to take mankind to heaven, but to save humanity from hell. So I think then, therefore, uh, after these 100 years, uh, it's now time for a more workable, a more knowable employment law of international organizations. Thank you. Thank you.